New Year to you all, and uh, so thankful that you're here to celebrate the New Year uh, with us. And uh, we just, uh, especially, do want to thank uh, Peter and Sonia for being with us. What an encouragement it is to have you with us in our fellowship. And thank you so much for those words of encouragement. We're really uh, blessed by that. And I do believe there is going to be some uh, Frostbite Fellowship this afternoon uh, with the Smiths. So um, we look forward to having that time to uh, rejoice in all that God's been doing in our lives. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, we want to uh, get right into the Word this morning. So if you, if you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And I want to bring to you a message entitled simply, Treasuring Christ. Treasuring Christ. And as we begin this new year together, I think that there is no more appropriate word that I could bring to you, no more encouraging message that I could bring than that Christ is our all-surpassing treasure, that he is our most prized possession, that he is the pearl of great price, that he is the treasure hidden in the field. He is the greatest thing in our lives, and our only appropriate response to having received this treasure, our relationship with Christ, is to treasure him, is to value him above all things. And that is what Paul is going to talk to us about in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. So let's read this passage together, Philippians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. Paul says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The key verse in this text is what Paul says in verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And put simply, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is my treasure, that he is my most precious possession. He by far is my greatest joy. He by far is my greatest passion. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What Paul is saying here is simply that Jesus Christ is my treasure. And everything else in life, what Paul is saying, everything else in life in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ pales. It's rubbish. It's loss. It all pales in comparison to the value of the treasure that I have found in Christ. Paul says in verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
That word rubbish is really a shocking word in the Bible. It's, it's a vulgar term. Some translators have sought to soften its meaning because they say a word like this really shouldn't be in the Bible. It was used to describe the putrid remains of a half-eaten corpse filled with maggots. It was used to describe a pile of manure which stank in the nostrils. It was used to describe human excrement. It's been translated as dung, as manure, as excrement. It was used to describe the rotten trash that's thrown out into the streets and that dogs forge through. Paul is making his point in the strongest of language that everything else in life, any other pursuit, Any other goal, any other aim, any other possession pales so much in comparison to the surpassing value of Christ that I view everything else as rubbish, as skubalon in the Greek. It is all trash, excrement, filthy garbage. Nothing compares to the treasure I have found in Christ. I found the treasure. I found the most valuable possession that any man can find in this life, and that is Christ. It is my relationship with him. And he says in verse 8 that I have suffered the loss of all things. I've given up everything in order to gain this relationship with Christ. And if you think about it in Paul's life, he really did suffer the loss of all things. Paul was a former Pharisee. He had an esteemed possession in Jewish society, esteemed position. He was respected as a teacher of the law. He had an impeccable record, a Pharisaical pedigree. And he gave it all up when he came to Christ. And when he came to Christ, he became a despised disciple he became a persecuted preacher of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I'm considered to be the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. I've become a slave to all. He sits now in prison in Rome, awaiting possible death, awaiting sentencing, being robbed of all his rights. And he says, you know what? I have suffered the loss of all things. In order to gain Christ, I gave up my prestige, I gave up my esteem, I gave up everything that this world could offer to me. And you know what? I'm not pining for my life as a former Pharisee. I'm not looking at the world with longing in my heart. I'm not saying, gosh, if I could only just not be a Christian for a day, and have all that the world could offer me, and have my former comfortable life as a Pharisee back. Paul's not saying that. He's saying, you know what? Everything I've given up in order to gain Christ is rubbish. It's trash. I count all things as loss in comparison because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I get to know Christ. I get to have a relationship with the Lord of this universe. I get to know in an intimate and personal way the Savior of all mankind, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, me, Paul. I get to know him. And you know what? In comparison to that treasure, everything else pales. 
He speaks here of knowing Christ. That term gnosko refers to a personal, intimate relationship. It's referring more to, the, to just knowing facts about Christ. It, it's talking about more than just knowing things about the gospel. He's talking about, I'm, I'm relating to Christ. I'm walking with him. He loves me. I love him. I talk to him on a daily basis. I'm drawing nearer into a relationship with him. In verse 10, he says that I'm pressing on to know him, to have a deeper, closer relationship with Christ, and he's saying that this relationship of intimate knowledge is my most precious possession. I count all things as loss in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And as we begin this new year together, brothers and sisters, what I would say is that There's no greater encouragement I can bring to you from the word than this. There's no greater focus I could set before you as we begin this new year together than this. There's no greater exhortation that would be on my heart than this, than Christ. Christ is our treasure. And as we begin this new year, we must begin with this focus that No other pursuit and no other goal and no other aim that we can have as Christians in the new year can compare to simply knowing him, to simply having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our treasure. He is our treasure. Our treasure is not things about Christ. Our treasure is Christ. Our treasure is not activities for Christ. Our treasure is Christ. We get to know him by God's grace. God has given to us this relationship. And if you begin this new year with anything else on your heart, if you begin this new year with anything as the uppermost passion of your heart, then brothers and sisters, this new year will not be as fruitful as God would have it. Because Paul would say anything else that you would pursue except for Christ is rubbish. It's all trash. Unless it's for Christ and in Christ and because of Christ and through Christ. He is our all-surpassing treasure. Now this morning, what I want you to see is that the confession of verse 8 is not made in isolation. Paul says in verse 8 that Christ is my treasure, but that confession that he makes doesn't plop out out of the sky out of nowhere. It is surrounded by a line of reasoning which leads Paul to make this confession. In other words, there is a pathway There is a line of reasoning that Paul thinks through that leads him to conclude with Christ is my treasure. And I want to say to us as a church that we need this line of reasoning. We need this pathway in order to to come to this conclusion that Christ is our treasure. Because the truth is, if you're honest, we don't always feel this way, the way we ought to. I'll be honest with you, I don't always feel this way. I know I ought to. I know that objectively speaking, Christ is my treasure. 
and I had to value him above all things. I I ought to have affections for him that are greater than any affections for anything else in this world. I ought to love him. I ought to be filled with joy. I ought to be filled with just treasuring him in my heart, but I'll just confess to you, I don't always feel that way. Sometimes my heart is cold. Many times my heart is distracted. Many times my heart is filled with affections for other things. I know I ought to say to the world, look, all the riches you have to give, all the prestige, all the degrees, all the honor, everything the world has to give is trash. I know I ought to be able to say that in my heart, but I'll confess to you that I don't always feel that way. That many times the world and all that it has to offer does look attractive. And that many times I can even wonder, if I wasn't a Christian, what what could I have? If I wasn't a Christian, could I have these? My heart isn't where it ought to be at all times. And if you're like me, and you're saying, Dan, you know what? I want my heart to say what Paul says in verse 8. I want my heart to say that Christ is my surpassing treasure, but Dan, I'm just struggling. You know, as we begin this new year, I'm just distracted. I got so many things going on in my mind and my heart, and Christ seems far away, and how do I get there? How do I come to this place where I can say with Paul that there's nothing else in life except for Christ? And what I would say to you is that this text not only presents to us the confession of Christ as our surpassing treasure, but it presents to us a pathway to get there. There is a line of reasoning that Paul unfolds in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9, that reaches a conclusion that Christ is our treasure. And what I want you to see is that we need to see this line of reasoning, we need to follow this pathway, we need to understand it, and then we need to continuously rehearse it in our hearts and in our minds so that our heart's affections would grow for Christ and that we too would say with Paul that he is our treasure. I want to summarize the essence of this flow of thought in one singular sentence, and the sentence is this. It is the doctrine of justification that leads us to treasure Christ. It is the doctrine of justification that leads us to treasure Christ. I believe this sentence captures the flow of thought in this passage. It is as Paul unfolds to us the doctrine of justification. It is as he explains to us the sufficiency of what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross. It is as he contrasts the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness imputed to our account by grace through faith with the folly of human righteousness, a righteousness of works. It is as he focuses our hearts and our minds on the doctrine of justification, our sins nailed to the cross with Christ, Christ's righteousness given to us by grace, that his heart is led to make this confession that Christ is more valuable than anything else in life. 
In other words, if you're struggling this morning and you're saying, Dan, my heart isn't where it ought to be, I want to say to you that the answer isn't just try harder. The answer isn't just stop being a bad Christian and start being a good Christian. The answer isn't just do it, just have these affections for Christ. No. Paul would say in this text, the answer is you go back to the doctrine of justification. You go back and understand in your heart the glory of the truth that has taken place for us in our salvation. You go back to the cross and you see how Christ has taken your sin. You go back to your conversion and you see how Christ has given to you his righteousness. You go deeper and deeper into the doctrine of justification. And as you go deeper into this doctrine, as is explained to us in the biblical text, your heart will say more and more that there's nothing better in life than knowing Christ. He is our treasure. This is the line of thinking in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9. And so this is the line of thinking that I want to unfold to you this morning. Paul unfolds for us the doctrine of justification in two distinct steps. First of all, he presents to us in this text the inadequacy of human righteousness. And then secondly, he presents to us the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. And all of this leads him to that singular conclusion that Christ is his surpassing treasure. So let's look first of all at the inadequacy of human righteousness beginning in verse 3. Paul says, For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You'll remember that Paul is addressing false teachers here. He says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There were false teachers known as Judaizers who are teaching salvation by faith plus circumcision. Paul says to the church, beware of these men. Beware of this false teaching. Beware of anyone who would add any work to the grace that is found in the gospel of Christ. And he says that in contrast, the true Christian in verse 3 glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. That statement, glorying in Christ Jesus, means that we trust in Christ Jesus. We rest in Christ Jesus. We put all our confidence in the work of Christ done on our behalf. And as a result, we rejoice with glory in the work that he has done. Galatians 6.14, may never be that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that the true Christian glories in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. The word flesh here refers to man apart from God, man apart from God's power working in and through him. It's talking about what man can accomplish, what man can achieve, what man can do in his own abilities. And what he's saying here is that we, as Christians, put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our religious works. We put no confidence in the deeds that we have done in order to earn God's favor. We put no confidence in the list of works that we have done 
before we came to Christ, we don't try to bring this list of works righteousness to God and say, look, God, you need to accept me because I've done all these things. The true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. Instead, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we trust fully in the work that he has accomplished for us. Paul's point here is that there is a contrast, there is a distinction between the righteousness of man and the righteousness of Christ. And what the Judaizers were doing was they were trying to mix these two forms of righteousness into a hybrid. He's saying you need to keep these distinct. We put no confidence in any work that we have done. And instead we trust fully in the work of Christ done for us. Paul wants, is so concerned that we understand this point that in verse 4, he digresses into personal testimony. And he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying here, Look, if anyone has done enough works to earn God's acceptance, to earn God's favor, If anyone has a list long enough, impressive enough, sufficient enough, that God will say, look, you have done enough works, I will now accept you on the basis of what you have done. If anyone could say that, it would be me. Verse 4, if if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says to anyone, who would want to boast in their flesh. Do you think your list is impressive? Do you think your works have earned a standing before God? Do you think your list is long enough? That it's complete enough? That it is impressive enough that God is going to look at you with favor because of the works that you have done? If anyone could make that claim, I have a greater reason to make that claim than any religious person. What Paul's saying here is, remember, I was a former Pharisee. I was not just a religious person. I was a religious fanatic. I was a religious zealot. You'll remember that the Pharisees were the religious fanatics of their day. They were so zealous in their efforts at good works, there were only 6,000 Pharisees in the day of Christ. That's how high and rigorous their moral standards were. It's only 6,000 people could say, I would even try to achieve that. They added to the Mosaic Law a multitude of extra-biblical rules and regulations. Their regulations were so stringent and so silly at times. One of their laws was that on the Sabbath, if you took something in your hand and threw it up in the air and caught it with another hand, that's work, and you've just broken the Sabbath. But if you take that same thing and throw it up in the air and catch it with the same hand, that's not work, and you've kept the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had a multitude of rules and regulations like this, minute distinctions. Jesus said in Matthew 23, they tithe mint and dill and cumin, the spices on their spice rack. They separated a tenth for God, and nine-tenths for me. And Paul was part of this pharisaical religion, and he says if anyone could make the claim that their works earn God's favor, it would be me. I've 
talk to many unbelievers who have a list. You ask most unbelievers, why should God let you into heaven? They'll answer with a list. They'll say, it's because I've been a good person, or I paid my taxes, or I've had a good career, or I've been faithful to my wife, or I wasn't a deadbeat dad like my dad. I, I raised my kid faithfully. They'll present a list, and Paul says to any unbeliever, look, if you have a list, I have a longer list. If anyone has reason to have confidence in their flesh, I have more. And he goes on to list some of the religious credentials that were on that list. He says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't like the proselyte Gentiles that were being taught by the Judaizers. I wasn't circumcised later in life as a Gentile coming into Jewish faith. I was circumcised on the eighth day as a Jew in strict obedience to the Mosaic law. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my lineage all the way back to Jacob, and I was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a noble tribe, a favored tribe. When the promised land was divided and distributed, the portion containing the city of Jerusalem was given to the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is claiming a privileged ancestry, a privileged genealogy. He goes on to say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In Paul's day, there were Jews known as the Hellenistic Jews. These Hellenists were Jews who had assimilated to the Greek language, the Greek culture. I can relate to the Hellenistic Jews because I am a Korean American. My parents are from Korea, but I was born and raised in the USA. I speak maybe 15 words of Korean. I go to Korean restaurants and they laugh at me because I'm just gesturing about what I like. I mean, of lineage, I am from Korea, but culturally, I am an American. And the Hellenistic Jews were much like that. They were of the lineage of the Jews, but they're culture was Greek. And Paul says, I'm no Hellenist. I don't speak only Greek. I speak the Hebrew language. In Acts chapter 22, we see Paul in front of the crowd at Jerusalem, and he is quieting the crowd because he's speaking in Hebrew. He says in verse 5, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I murdered Christians. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's an impressive list. That's a list more impressive than just about anybody in the world. Paul says if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he can earn God's righteousness through the works that he has done, I have far more reason than anyone. I was blameless as a Pharisee. Paul wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a son of Pharisees. He grew up in the family, in the culture of Pharisees. And to the Judaizers who are teaching salvation by circumcision, Paul says, you think circumcision is going to earn favor before God. I have far more than circumcision on my list of works righteousness. And yet in verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
whatever list I was seeking to bring to God to earn my favor before a holy God, when I came to Christ, I realized that all of that was trash. It was all rubbish. It was all scubalon, excrement. None of it earned God's favor. In fact, Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, All our righteous works are as filthy rags. None of it commended my, my soul to God. None of it earned any standing before God. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul uses accounting terminology here to say that all of these works that were in the profit column of my life, I came to Christ and I transferred it to the loss column of my life. And what he's saying here is more than just when I came to Christ, I took my list and crumpled it up and threw it away. He's saying more than I just saw this, that it is of no value. He's actually saying that it was loss. It was my debit. It was detrimental. The works that I thought were commending me to God were actually the things that were standing as a barrier between me and God. These religious works were actually the things that were hardening my heart that were deluding me into thinking that I didn't need a savior, that were covering my sin in a superficial way. The very works that I thought were bringing me to God were the works that were keeping me from a relationship with him. And he says, whatever was I thought was my gain, all of these pharisaical works, all of this morality, all of this ceremony, all of the strict obedience to the law, I thought it was bringing me to God and I transferred it and it became lost to me. When I came to Jesus Christ, I saw my list as the very things that were keeping me from relationship with God. I want you to note here a couple notes from this text. First of all, religious people need salvation. Religious people need to be saved. Don't be deluded into thinking that because a person is moral, because a person goes to church, because a person gives to charity or does philanthropic works that they do not need a savior. In fact, these are the people who may need the greatest work of grace in their hearts to see that all of those works are nothing before God. Religious people need salvation. The, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and he said, looked at the law and he said, all of these things I've done as a youth, I have no need for a savior. And that man was in need of converting, regenerating grace of God that shows him the inadequacy of his works before God and the sufficiency of Christ's work on his behalf. I want you to note, secondly, that religious people can be even those who are most hostile to Jesus Christ. Religious people, not just, they don't just need salvation, but in the Bible we see that they are the people who hate Christ the most. It was religious people who hated Christ the most. It was religious people who nailed Jesus to the cross. It was religious people who mocked and scorned him as he died. It was Paul 
who said, when I was a former Pharisee, I was the one who persecuted the church. It is these religious works that are not only of little value, but they harden the heart against God. They delude the sinner into thinking he has no need for a Savior. And when they see the grace of God, they are the most hostile because this grace is an offense to the legalism in their souls. What must happen for the religious person to come to Christ is a sovereign work of God in conversion. And this is the work that occurred to Paul. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in verse 7, he moves from the first point, the inadequacy of human righteousness, to the second point, which is the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. The sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 9, this has been called one of the sweetest and most succinct summaries of the doctrine of justification found in all the New Testament. Paul says, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The contrast in this text couldn't be clearer. There is a pathway to righteousness, which is the righteousness of man, is a righteousness of works, is a righteousness of religion. Paul pursued this path and tried to earn his standing before God, and he said in the end it was all trash, it was all rubbish, it was all refuse. In contrast, when he came to Christ, he received the righteousness of Christ. It is a righteousness of grace. It is a righteousness received by faith. It is a righteousness not accomplished by human works or human achievement. It is a righteousness that has been accomplished by Christ in his earthly life, in his earthly incarnation. It was Jesus who accomplished this righteousness when he came to earth and he lived a blameless life in perfect obedience to the Mosaic law. He accumulated an account of perfect, blameless, human righteousness. And this righteousness, Paul says, has been given to me as a free gift of grace from God. And I have received it not by any works that I have done, but simply by faith and believing in the gospel message. This contrast Paul is making cannot be clearer. And the threat that was threatening the church was that the Judaizers were trying to mix the two. And Paul is saying you need to keep it clear. And so in verse 9, he summarizes the doctrine of justification. And there are three features of this doctrine in this text. I'll give them to you very quickly. First of all, Paul emphasizes that the righteousness I've received is not my righteousness. 
It is not my righteousness. He says, I want to be found, verse 9, in him, not having a righteousness of my own. He says, this righteousness is not from me. It does not originate from me. It did not come from me. I did not earn it. I did not achieve it. I did not work for it. This righteousness is not my own. It is a righteousness that has been given to me from outside of me. Theologians call this the alien righteousness of Christ, emphasizing the fact that this righteousness by which we stand and by which we live is imputed to us from outside of us. It has been earned and accomplished apart from anything that we have done, and it is given to us as a gift of God's grace. Paul says here that this righteousness is not my righteousness. Secondly, he emphasizes that this righteousness which comes to me, comes to me in Christ. It is in Christ that I have found this righteousness. I want to be found in him that is in Christ. And this is a righteousness not of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul uses one of his favorite terms to describe the Christian's relationship with Christ. We are in Christ. When we believed in Christ, we didn't just come to be near Christ or around Christ or with Christ. We have actually been placed in Christ. The Christian has been placed in such intimate union with the Lord Jesus Christ that God sees his righteousness as our righteousness and his record as our record. And so Paul says that this righteousness comes to me in Christ. And thirdly, he says, this righteousness is a righteousness that is received by faith. It is received by faith. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Romans 4, verse 4 says, Now as to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And as to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts as righteousness apart from works. We've been learning that faith has an active side. Faith expresses itself in obedience. Faith expresses itself in love. Faith expresses itself in submission to the will of God. But here in this text, Paul is emphasizing the passive side of faith. Faith is coming to God with empty hands. Faith is coming to God with no claims for any works that we have done. And faith is simply receiving the free gift of God, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has been accomplished outside of us and has now been imputed to us. Faith receives that righteousness apart from any works. Paul says that this righteousness I have received is a righteousness that depends on faith. In our justification, the moment of our conversion, all of our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ. Colossians 2.14 says that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God took all the, the list of sins that we have done 
the list of transgressions, the list of guilt, and he nailed it to the cross with Christ, and he punished Jesus on our behalf. And then in our justification, God took the perfect, spotless record of righteous deeds that Christ had earned in the 33 years he lived on this earth, a righteous record that is without flaw, without stain, without blemish. And he took that perfect record and he imputed it to us in the moment of our conversion. He reckoned it to our account. He gave us this righteousness as a free gift of grace so that God not only in our justification treats Jesus as if he has sinned every single one of the sins that we have committed, but God turns around and treats us as if we had performed every single one of the works that Christ had earned. This is the glory of our justification. This is the glory of what theologians call the doctrine of double imputation. It's double because it is not only all of our sins at the cross with Jesus, but it is all of Christ's righteousness to our account by faith. The analogy is if you have a billion-dollar debt for your credit card and a generous benefactor comes and pays that debt, you would be debt-free, but you would not be rich. You'd be zeroed out, but you would not have any positive balance to your account. And the glory of our justification is not just that God comes and wipes away our billion-dollar-plus debt of sins. But God takes the positive balance of righteousness, the billion-dollar-plus account of Christ, and he credits it to our account as a free gift of grace. And what Paul is saying in this text is that the more we understand the glory of this doctrine, the more we understand the glory of this righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that comes to us through Christ, the more we allow this doctrine to become central in our hearts and in our minds and our affections, the more we will say with him in verse 8, that he is our treasure. He is our surpassing treasure. That nothing else in life compares to just knowing him, just having a relationship with him. Because of all that he has done for us in his grace. And so I want to bring you back, as we come away from this text, back to my initial point. It is the doctrine of justification that leads us to treasure Christ. If you're trying to treasure Christ and grow in your love for Christ and grow in your affections for Christ apart from doctrine, it will not be an affection that lasts for the rest of your life. You need to go to doctrine. You need to go to this doctrine. And brothers and sisters, what I would say to you this morning that as a Christian in 2012, you need to study the doctrine of justification. 
You need to study this doctrine as it is unfolded for us in the biblical text. We just looked at one verse this morning which summarizes the doctrine. We've seen the power of this doctrine in our, in our affections, in our hearts. But this doctrine is given much more extensive treatment in other scriptures. You need to read the book of Romans this year, brothers and sisters. You need to, to memorize verses which speak of justification. You need to especially read Romans chapters 1 to 5 and drink those truths into your heart and rigorously with your mind understand how this doctrine is unfolded in the biblical text of the word of God. And you need to not only understand this doctrine, you need to become skilled in using it and in applying it and rehearsing it in your everyday life. I think one of the greatest weapons against discouragement, one of the greatest weapons against temptation, one of the greatest weapons against idolatry, one of the greatest weapons against lukewarmness in our heart is this doctrine. It is the doctrine of justification. You use this doctrine to fight temptation, to fight your battles, to fight your cold heart. This is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And parents, I would just say a special word to you as a fellow parent. You need to understand this doctrine to the point where you can explain it to your children. You need to be able to explain this doctrine in a way that it makes sense to your children. And it can make sense to even the youngest of child. If as a parent you think through how to explain it and let the constant refrain being heard in your home to your children be not morals and not ethics, but may it be justification the work of God's substitution, the work of Christ's righteousness, which is not our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if you were a criminal with a long record of sins and were weighted down by a sentence of execution, if you were this criminal and came before a judge and you heard this judge pardon you, you heard this judge declare you not guilty, would not your heart be affected by that judge. If that judge were to take it one step further and not only pardon you for the crimes that you have done, but actually give you his name, give you his robes, give you his driver's license, his social security card, his possessions, his home, his law degree, if he were to give you the 30 years of sterling service that he had earned because of his faithfulness to the court of law, would that truth affect your heart? Would you not grow to love this judge? Would you not say that he is the loveliest of all people in this world? And what would you do? What would your response be if you saw that in order for this judge to pardon you from your crimes, and in order for this judge to give you his robe, he needed to take off his robes and take on your criminal garb. He needed to be handcuffed with the handcuffs that belonged to you. He needed to be led away 
by the bailiff to the jail cell that you had earned, and he needed to stand under the sentence of execution that was yours because he knows as a judge that the law's demands must be fulfilled in order for a guilty criminal to receive grace. Would you not love him? Would you not say he is the most beautiful of all peoples? And we know in this illustration that the judge in this story is none other than Christ. It is Christ. It is Jesus who took our sins. It is Jesus who gave us his righteousness. And it is Jesus whom we would say with Paul that he is the greatest treasure in our lives. And brothers and sisters, I would plead with you this morning as we begin this year, 2012, there is no greater focus, no greater goal, no greater prize, no greater treasure than simply knowing Christ, loving Christ, being found in Christ, treasuring him in our hearts. As a church, let's make us, let's make that our value, our possession, and our prize as we head into this new year, 2012. Would you bow with me in prayer and let's close our time. Our Father, what a joy it has been this morning to contemplate the work of Christ. And Father, our hearts are filled with praise to you for the great things you have done in our justification. Father, we thank you that what we could never accomplish through the works of the law has been accomplished for us through the works of Christ. We thank you for the free gift of God the free grace that you have given to us, that we may stand before you, not only as having been freed from the sins that we have committed, but actually being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Father, I pray for us as a church. I pray for our hearts, Lord. We confess so often being cold in our hearts and having divided affections and running after other things and setting other things as idols instead of simply treasuring Christ above all things. And Father, help us to see. Lord, with the eyes of our heart, help us through the work of your Spirit to see that everything this world has to offer is rubbish. Help us to treasure Christ. Not only this day, but the rest of this year, we pray. We thank you for this time and for your word. In Christ's name, amen.